if you need a worship guide, would you raise your hand? And uh, these men will be right to you to get you one. <clears throat> well, as you can see before us, we have a very tall order in front of us. Uh, this morning, we have a subject. Well, you know what? I need to show them. Yep, thank you. <laughs> Let me, I, I, I got to back and segue. We have a subject that I have not preached a, an entire message on in 25 years as pastor of this church. Now, I'm going I'm to stop there since I said 25 years, and we're going to look at year 2003. Are you ready? All right, here we go. I almost forgot. 2003. Okay, so <clears throat> in 2003 was the year that we signed the agreement with Second Baptist Church. There's a long story to that that I'm going to probably tell in a couple of weeks uh, to segue into our anniversary here in just about four weeks. We're almost there. June 11th is the big anniversary Sunday. So that was the day we signed. I, I stood right here with Pastor McAllister. He had the, the, on his little pulpit. And that's, that's actually, I'm standing where I'm standing right now, but I'm signing something that Second Baptist uh, gave to us. So pretty, pretty amazing. I'll tell you the whole story on that in a couple of weeks. Uh, then that was the year we, we had a, uh, a campaign called Focus on the Future. And we were purchasing all of Second Baptist facilities along with trying to launch the beginning of Champion Christian College, or Champion Baptist College at the time, now, now Christian College. And so that was the pledge card. And the church pledged $750,000 and gave it so that we could actually purchase, which was way out of our league, to think that God could do that. And here we are. <clears throat> Pretty amazing. Um, this was cool. The Gospelite family is very grateful to welcome. These were new families that joined our church. You can still see some in our church that joined on that Sunday and others that are serving the Lord in other places. I just thought that was cool. A 2003 bulletin that had a list of families like we'll have this this time. There's the Gallus family. How many remember Glenn? Gallus? A few of you remember Glenn? That's the whole crew there. And uh, they grew up, uh, reached through the bus ministry of our church. Glenn got saved. I'll never forget it. He walked the aisle, and uh, how did he put it? He actually, oh yeah, the first service, that's right. Glenn was here Sunday one, before he was saved. He, he wasn't saved, he just walked the aisle. He said, preach, I'll tell you what, that was one hell of a sermon. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. About three weeks later, he got saved and from hell, amen, and accepted Jesus. Oh, it's funny. <clears throat> and there's Bruce and Teresa Jones still. Bruce and Teresa here today, by chance? They're all, they come often. I didn't know if they'd be. I wanted to show their, their, fan, their picture. They're awesome. He's on the Chamber of Commerce. There, okay, this was the first Sunday in what used to be our teen church on 4th Street. We purchased, it's now like New Beginnings Church or something, but we started the teen church, and then the Spanish church moved from over on Grand Avenue to that building, and then they moved from that building to the building they're in now. So there was a lot of building swapping going around at the time, but that, that was the first Sunday in that new teen church. I thought that was cool. This was the year we won our very first state championship in basketball, 2003. Dennis Duncantel hit a shot. Dennis is the uh, young man standing right next to me on the top row there. I'll never forget. Have you ever seen... When North Carolina State won the national championship and Jimmy V 
Anybody basketball fans here? Jimmy V runs on the... Remember that? That was me. I tackled Dennis on the court. And I had a suit on. And I'm underneath like 20 players. And my legs are just like, you know, like this. In a suit. The pastor of the church, you know. It was insane. Our record that year, we had won... 11 games and lost 18 games, 11 and 18, and won the state championship. It was a miracle season. That's another story that I put at the end of a lot of my sermons to teenagers, how you can overcome defeat and win. It was awesome. So that's the crew. Um, Then there's me and Carol Ann, uh, just that kind of how we looked in 2003. All right. And there's Joe and you can see they got a little Asian in them, you know, uh, Cool. It's Chloe praising God, worshiping God in the backyard. And there's the whole crew. There's uh, Brother Yoshida and Miss Yoshida. Of course, Brother Yoshida's in heaven. But that was a 2003 picture. The last one? Yeah, that's the whole crew. So anyway, that's 2003. We'll keep moving on. Next week's 2004. All right. Well, I mentioned I've not preached on this in 25 years. I have mentioned it. I've preached about it in sermons. I... Uh, But I got to thinking about the fact that if we are to preach the whole counsel of God, then there's so much in the Bible about alcohol. So I got to studying it, and I thought, why haven't I devoted a whole message when there are literally dozens of verses that that God brings to our attention about this subject? And yet 25, and I'm not proud to say this. I am not proud. So I got to thinking, why, why is it? that I've never really preached an entire message on the subject of what the Bible teaches about alcohol. Maybe it's because I heard of a lot of unbiblical teaching. What I mean by that is teaching that where preachers raise their voice, get really red-faced and pound the pulpit about stuff they don't use Scripture for. And so I've had a lot of preaching about subjects like this where the Bible is not referenced a whole lot, but where because it's popular to say it, you get a reaction from the crowd and you move on without any biblically-based truth. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's because when I was young, <clears throat> to be a member of the church that I went to, you, would have, you couldn't drink. I mean, you couldn't be a member if you, if you drank any alcohol. It, was, it would have been prohibited. Maybe because there was a lot of judgmental thinking back then. For instance, you know, if you... If you, if you drink any alcohol, you're not spiritual. In fact, we are more spiritual than you because you do this and we don't. That mentality, not just about alcohol, but about anything. So potentially, <clears throat> in an effort to show love and grace, I have been careful and cautious about the approach that I take towards this subject. But I must admit that I think it's long overdue. I realize that Paul said to Timothy in Scripture, drink a little wine for the stomach's sake. I understand that the first miracle of Jesus, I understand he turned water into wine. I'm not here to talk about fermentation or non-fermentation. I don't want to be harsh this morning or legalistic. This is not what that's about. I'm not going to get red-faced or pound the pulpit. Here's what I believe. I believe in trying to avoid legalism on the subject of alcohol that we as a church 
have come dangerously close to promoting license. You see, because of the fact that many churches like ours were stooped in legalism, what happens is, in an effort to try to balance things out and to really emphasize grace, sometimes people take that and you, you just sort of, sort of watch them keep running. And you're like, oh, wait, wait, no. And that's happened in, in our sweet church. And we got a great church. And yet, oh, that's okay. That Glorianne, is she okay? You can take her out, yeah. That's my daughter. That's okay, sweetheart. Bless her heart. Let's pray for Glorianne. Father, we, we thank you for our daughter, Lord. And we don't know sometimes what goes on in her mind and how, Lord, sometimes things can happen in, in, in the life of a child that's uh, impaired and struggles mentally. Lord, we would ask that you would touch her. And we don't know if it's a headache and she can't say I have a headache or if she's thirsty and she can't say I'm thirsty or if she's hurting and she can't say I'm hurting. But we know, God, that you know. You know the pain. You know what she needs. So touch her body and show her, God, uh, something sweet this morning in her life and, and help us to learn to have compassion on those who are special. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So in an effort sometimes to promote grace, we see folks take something and begin to do it as if there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. And the position that maybe we have taken in the past, because of an emphasis on grace, that all of a sudden, that's, there's, there's no issue with that anymore. Maybe that's what's happened. So what I'd like to do is, is try to answer that, solve that problem. My goal this morning is to, is to solve that problem because at Gospelite, we, we do not promote the use of alcohol at all. But why? Because of what Baptists think? Because of what a pastor thinks? No, honestly, because of what the Bible teaches. And so what we want to do this morning is, is go to the Bible and say, God, what did you say about this? And let's look at it. And let's look at how much God said. And let's look at the context of which God said it. There's three types of people here this morning. The first type of person is those who have a drinking problem. It's way beyond just a drink of beer every now and then. Once every once in a while, I have a beer. Once every six months, I might have a glass of wine. No, that's, it's way beyond that. This is the person who has a problem. You drink because you need to, and that's not taking you to a good place. Secondly, drinking is not a problem for, for the next person, but they really enjoy a little alcohol here and there. I think it's called affectionately social drinking. Just every now and then, we just, I just enjoy getting with some folks and having a little drink. I drink for amusement. That's all. The third group of people is the group I'm a part of, and that's total abstainers. They don't drink at all. I believe that's the three groups of people we probably have here this morning. Now, I don't know what group you are in or what group you fit into, but my goal this morning is to, and I want to key in on that next word, lovingly. My goal is to lovingly lead you into what I believe to be the highest and best choice for a follower of Jesus Christ. 
And isn't that what every sermon is supposed to accomplish? Isn't that really the theme of everything that a church and a pastor should do? Shouldn't it be that our main emphasis, every sermon should be to bring you into a place where you would choose what's best, what's highest, so that when we stand before Jesus Christ and look him in the face, we can say, I did the very best thing that I could do with my life. And so I, I don't want it to be what Eric thinks. I want it to be what God says. In an effort to do that, I'm going to give you six reasons why I do believe in total abstinence from alcohol. I want to promise you from the outset that if you come to a different conviction, I am not going to judge you about it. That's good news. I'm not here to judge. Let every man be at peace in his own heart. But here's what I am going to do, and I think this is fair. I'm going to challenge you to be able to defend your conviction from what God's word says. Because that's what I'm doing right now. I'm defending my position based on what God's word says. And I think that's fair. So if you take a different position, just make sure you can defend that with God's word. So we're going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6 is the only passage that we won't uh, have on the screen. I like, I, I just think it's necessary that everyone turn in your Bible. So if you have a tablet or a phone or you have a Bible. Now, if you, if you say, well, I never, I don't bring anything to church. Well, then how do you follow the text? You got to have something. So I encourage you to get on your phones, get in your tablet or get your Bibles out and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Six reasons. Are you ready? Number one. Here it is. Let's just get right in it. Because drunkenness, I believe in total abstinence from alcohol because drunkenness is a sin, not a disease. Drunkenness is a sin, not a disease. Now, I realize I'm going against mainstream America when I say that. By the way, I'm going against mainstream America when I say anything's a sin. Okay? Most Americans believe that alcoholism is beyond the individual's control. Disease. It's a disease. It's a sickness. It's not a character flaw. It's just a sickness. It's, it's the result of genetical predisposition. People that just can't help it. It's not a choice. And therefore, it's not a sin. Well, I want to be very clear in saying, according to the word of God, I do not believe that. Someone has written, and I agree. If alcoholism is a disease, it's the only disease that is contracted by an act of the will. If alcoholism is a disease, it's the only disease that requires a license to propagate it. If alcoholism is a disease, it's the only disease that is bottled and sold. If alcoholism is a disease, it's the only disease that promotes crime and domestic violence. If alcoholism is a disease, it's the only disease that is spread through advertising. If alcoholism is a disease, it's the only disease that, without a germ or a virus cause, and put your seatbelts on for this and get ready for a passage of Scripture, because if alcoholism is a disease, then it's the only disease that bars a person from heaven. That keeps a person from heaven. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and... Let's look at the word of God and take him for his word. 
He says in verse number 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's heaven. Now, we're going to read a list of sins that he says, don't be deceived by these things. Now, wait a minute. As we read this list of sins, we're not talking about if someone commits these one time. What we're seeing here is if we commit them habitually, it, it, it means that we're not sincerely following Jesus Christ. If we commit them habitually over and over again with no conscience, with no conviction, if this is our lifestyle, then, then we, we, we won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. We're not truly born again. That's what scripture teaches here. So he says, don't be deceived, verse 9, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, speaking of homosexuality, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. People who practice this will not go to heaven. They're not truly committed followers of Christ. Read the next verse. Look at it. It's amazing. And such were some of you. Remember? You. Some of you. Me. We can identify with some of these sins that that before we were saved, we were involved in. But you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, you're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, old things become new. It doesn't mean that from time to time we don't slip and fall. We don't struggle in an area, but it's not habitually invading our lives and overcoming us. That would completely show that there was never a sincere commitment to Christ because things change. All things, he says in verse 12, they're lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The power of alcohol. So many have come under the influence of alcohol. And the Bible says that the only influence that Jesus wants his followers to be under is the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's it. The Spirit of God that would influence it in such a way that we'd be filled with Him in excess, the Bible says. In fact, in the book of Acts, it speaks of those who are filled with the Spirit. They were accused of being drunk because they were so filled with the Spirit of God. It's amazing when you experience that fullness, the difference it makes in your life. And so we see here that Scripture is very clear. We learn that drunkenness is a sin. Now, I know there's a question that could be asked. Some would say, well, haven't scientists and biologists and, 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 and some, haven't some people been able to discover that folks are just born with a genetic predisposition toward alcohol? Isn't that a fact, Eric? Not exactly. There's conflicting studies on that. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I, I, I'm not. But I can tell you that there are those that don't agree that, that there's any genetic predisposition towards alcohol. Some say yes, some say no, some say maybe. There's a lot of discussion, argument, a lot of gray area when it comes to that subject. So let me just tell you what I know the Bible says about that. Exodus chapter 20. Scripture says this, verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. 
For I'm the Lord thy God, I'm a jealous God. Pay close attention to the next few statements. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Not a pregenetic disposition. But visiting the iniquity of the fathers, the dads, the parents, the adults, the people in these children's lives, innocent children whose parents' sins have affected their lives. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third, third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Children will tend to fall into the same sinful patterns that their parents were in. There's an inclination toward that. So here is what I am very sure of. If we are born with an inclination toward a certain sin, that is not, that is an inclination, it's not an excuse. In other words, inclination does not mean that I cannot resist. It may be harder for me to resist because of the sins of my parents. It may be harder, but I can resist. So let's show some grace to those. Who grew up in homes where there was alcohol. Let's show some grace. Let's not judge them. Let's understand that it's a little tougher for them. Let's be careful that we're a good example. That we understand that there's going to be times when young people, especially children and teenagers. Because of what their parents have done, it's made it a little tougher for them to be inclined to do the same thing. I know scripture teaches that based on Exodus chapter 20. Because I want this to be a Bible message, not scientists and biologists argue. But God says. That has a lot more power to it. Drunkenness is a sin. Number two. The second reason why I believe in total abstinence is because alcohol impairs wisdom. It impairs wisdom. And I'll just be honest with you. I ain't all that smart, so I can't really throw away brain cells. I just can't do it. I just can't afford to take 20% of my brain and say, see ya, I don't need you. I can't do it. Proverbs 31 teaches us this. Proverbs chapter 31. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes. That word strong is another word for intoxicating. Okay, so in other words, kings, leaders, people of influence, no alcohol, period, end of story, no discussion, zero. Pastors, presidents, leaders, I mean, I could stretch it and say, dads, I could. You take it where you want to take it. I'm just saying it's clear here that, that, that there's absolutely no room repeatedly in the Bible Those with significant responsibilities are told to abstain completely from alcohol. Completely. There's other places in Scripture. For instance, priests are told that they they are not to drink alcohol in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9. In the Old Testament, we find that when you take a Nazarite vow, no alcohol. In the New Testament, John the Baptist took that vow and never drank one drop of alcohol. He was forbidden to drink any. So it's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor princes strong drink. Why? Why should those with leadership and responsibility never drink? Here it is. Lest they drink and forget the law and prefer the judgment of any of the afflicted. Alcohol impairs wisdom. So don't drink because it might 
affect your discernment, your ability to lead, your ability to make decisions. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's for you, pastor. That's for those in leadership, kings. Hold on. Because the New Testament teaches that all of us are kings and priests. In Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and, and dominion forever and ever. I got some good news for if you're a child of God washed in the blood of Jesus and coming to the Lord's Supper tonight to celebrate your victory, then you are a king and a priest. And it's not for you to drink. So there's something there that we need to discover and study. Studies show that even small amounts of alcohol impair wisdom. Tests show that after taking three bottles of beer, there's an average net loss of memory of 13%. Typists, trained typist errors increased 40% with small amounts of alcohol. One ounce of alcohol retards muscular reaction by 13%. One ounce of alcohol increases the required time to make a decision by 10%. One ounce of alcohol increases errors due to lack of attention and focus by 35%. One ounce. It impairs wisdom. Number three, I believe in total abstinence from alcohol because alcohol is an unnecessary drug. It's a drug, but it's an unnecessary drug. Now I want you to look at Proverbs 31. Everything's got scripture, verse 6 and 7. Because this is one of those scriptures that, in all fairness, hey, let's throw it out there. Let's throw it out as an an argument. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. That's not, listen, we're not talking about fermentation. We don't need to study all that and go into a big debate. That's alcohol, bro. That's stuff that makes you a little, that sauces you right there. It gets you a little bit crazy. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. And wine. Unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink. Let him forget his poverty. Remember his misery. No more. Now I want to notice some things about that verse. Lest we misunderstand what God is teaching us here. First of all. Notice very clearly. That, that, that this is not individual consumption. Do you see it? Go back to that verse. Six, give, give strong drink. Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. This is not individual consumption. This is not me having a bad day to he- and head down to the liquor store so I can, you know, cope. Huh? That red light just made me so nervous. It stayed red so long. I need a drink. That's not heavy heart perishing. That's not what it's talking about here. This is someone else. This is not personal consumption. Notice the phrase in the King James, heavy hearts. ESV says bitter distress. You know what that is? 
Just do a little study. It's overwhelming grief. One theologian put, it would be likened to you, you getting a phone call that your child was killed in an accident and his head was decapitated. That's the kind of grief we're talking. Heavy, heavy hearts is talking about coming home only to find out your house is burnt to the ground. This bitter distress is speaking of someone who, who has found out that someone that they're very close to has passed. This is alcohol as a drug for the person who is so consumed because of overwhelming circumstances that they're starting to break down. Now let's contextualize this. Let's contextualize. This passage of Scripture was written in a day when you couldn't go to your local pharmacy to get a little help, where you couldn't get some medicine prescribed. This was written before you, you could buy NyQuil. <laughs> this was given as a drug to help someone get through overwhelming grief. So let me paraphrase for today. If you have strong drink at your house, don't consume it selfishly just to pass the time. Today, I don't know of a doctor that would prescribe alcohol for emotional trauma. I don't know of one. Do you? I don't know of one. Doctor, my, my, my child has just got diagnosed with cancer, and I'm just so stressed. Go home and get drunk. It'll help you. I'm telling you, it's just great. Destroys your liver and give you heart disease, and you'll, you'll gain some weight. But hey, if you've got to deal with it, just get a, get a bottle of vodka and go for it. Silly, isn't it? So, so we got to contextualize Scripture. Got to understand that Scripture is not teaching here that, that we just start, all start prescribing alcohol for people. We, what we need to understand is that, that we live in a day now where we're blessed with physicians and pharmacies and people that can help folks that have overwhelming distress. Alcohol is an unnecessary drug. Number three. I believe in total abstinence from alcohol because alcohol is destructive. Now, when I think about destructive, I, I, I think of Scripture, and then I think of statistics, right? So let's go to statistics first. I couldn't decide which one to use first. I'll go with statistics first. Alcohol is destructive to the individual. Alcohol kills brain cells. It kills brain cells. Al- this is, By the way, this is not like maybe, kind of, probably. Alcohol leads to sluggish thinking. Alcohol leads to obesity. It leads to liver disease. It leads to heart disease. Alcohol shortens life expectancy 12 to 15 years on average. And think about what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in your text, verse 9 says, or or, uh, I should say 19 and 20 on the screen. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our bodies are God's temple. God doesn't want us impairing the wisdom he gave us and and affecting our decision-making process. Alcohol is the major cause in 36% of all suicides in our country. Four of every ten suicides... Major cause, alcohol. 
It's destruction not just to the individual, but those of you that think, well, I drink some, but I mean, just, I, I just, it just hurt myself. If I hurt anybody, it just hurt myself. Alcohol is destruction to those around us. The social cost of alcohol abuse was estimated, this is 1980, 1980, $90 billion in 1980. All right, 1987, $133 billion. The, the, the nearest to 2017 I could find on the internet was 2006, $233 billion annually alcohol consumption. We could turn the world upside down in two weeks with $233 billion being used up to 11 years ago to consume alcohol. Alcohol-related car accidents, one in every 22 seconds. In the next minute that I preach, there'll be three accidents related to alcohol. One out of every 10 people driving on the road are impaired. You leave the Lord's Supper tonight, go home, be careful. One of every 10 are impaired. Single vehicle crashes. One person in the car. Single vehicle crashes. Get this. 12,000 killed annually. 12,000 killed annually. 50% drunk. This, this one I couldn't believe. It's incredible. In the period of 10 years, this is like, I can't, my mind can't wrap around this. Four times the number of people who died in the entire Vietnam War have died in alcohol-related accidents. So I'm going to break it down to you like this. That's like a 747 with 500 passengers going down every week and everybody dying. Next week, another one goes down. Well, this is crazy. Next week, another one goes down. Man, four 747s have crashed and everybody's dead. What's going on? That happens with alcohol. Why are we just as upset about it? If a plane crashed every week, you'd never get on a plane again. Never. And yet somehow, we're not affected by all these folks that are dying in alcohol-related accidents. It's crazy to me. Destruction to the family. 25% of all family problems are alcohol-related. Alcohol and violence go together. Alcohol and murder go together. Alcohol and rape go together. Alcohol and child abuse go together. Alcohol and murder go together. You can't separate them. Alcohol is destructive, so destructive that back in 1920, the 18th Amendment was set in place to make alcohol completely illegal. No manufacturing of it. You guys familiar with that? No sale of it? 100 years ago, 18th Amendment. Lasted about 10 years. Consumption of alcohol went down. Crime went up. Back in the day of Al Capone, they were illegally getting alcohol into the homes of people, and crime went way up. And so 10 years it lasted. It was the only amendment ever to get thrown out. The 21st Amendment replaced it. I think Roosevelt ran his entire presidency and his election on that one new amendment to get rid of the 18th. The lesson being this, that there was a day in America where we saw how bad it was and we said, get rid of all of it. I'm just preaching the truth. Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs 23 gives us some consequences of alcohol beginning in verse 29. Look at it. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who, who, who is this person? Who has babbling? Who has wounds? We don't know how he got them. 
Who has redness of eyes? Who is this person? It's the one that tarries long at the wine. It's the one that goes to seek mixed wine. And I know that some may be saying, well, it says tarry long. What if you don't tarry long? I told you there might be some gray area. And if you want to hang your doctrine on that one thing, you go ahead. I just know this, that if I don't seek after it, I'll never have a problem with it. And if I don't tarry short, I won't tarry long. That's all I know. Then it goes on to say this. Look not thou upon the wine when it's red. This verse seems to give the connotation that wine is, is some sort of a experience. And you, you've gone to maybe airports or different venues where they've got these wine tasting things, right? And there's these folks like at a gala ball or something. I've never been to one, but I've heard about them. I've been to airports before, and I don't know why in the world at airports there's wine tasting venues. It's crazy. I just hope the pilots are not participating. <clears throat> it says, look, look, don't even look at the wine. Don't even look at it. When it moves in the cup, when it moves itself aright. Because let me tell you something about alcohol, he says. It's not like a bear. It doesn't come on you real slow and all of a sudden, you, over the period of time. No, no. Look at it. It, it. it bites like a serpent. It stings like a viper, an adder. It's quick. Alcohol will get you quick, man, before you know it. It'll sting you. It'll kill you. It'll destroy you. Verse 33. Your eyes will behold strange women. Alcohol associated with immorality. Speaking of people who have woken up from drunken stupors and say, I don't even know what happened last night. And the girl finds out a month later she's pregnant. She doesn't know who the daddy is. Craziness. Alcohol. Thy eyes should be old strange woman. Thy heart should perverse, utter, utter perverse things. And then look at this. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. Who would do that? Who would take an ocean liner to the middle of the sea and say, Hey, y'all hang out. I'm going in there. I just want to lay out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Either a fool or someone whose wisdom is impaired by alcohol. Or he that lieth upon the top of a mast. No discernment whatsoever. Alcohol is destructive. Number five, I believe in total abstinence from alcohol because alcohol is addictive. It's addictive. Proverbs chapter 23 verse 35 says this, They have stricken me. Thou shalt say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. Time out real quick. Wait a minute. Okay, here's somebody that's beaten, stricken, black eye, wounds without cause. I mean... This is a bad situation. What are they going to do? When, I, when shall I awake? I'll seek it yet again. It's addictive. I mean, things can, it, it can be like, I don't understand. Why, why are they keep doing it? It's addictive. Let's have some grace. Let's understand. Alcohol is addictive. That's why we have a great program here called Celebrate Recovery. It's why God's helping so many people through that scripturally-based program and God's servants that 
what a great ministry to serve in, celebrating its one-year anniversary in a couple of weeks, needing more volunteers. What better ministry to devote yourself to than helping those who've come under the addictive power of alcohol and other drugs, things like that. It's amazing. Our nation is sinking in an ocean of alcohol. I couldn't believe this, but in 2016, I can't wrap my mind around this. I just know it's a lot of beer. 575 billion gallons of beer consumed in 2016 by Americans. That's an ocean. Just beer. Alcohol. The addictive patterns of alcohol in people is so destructive. And conquering it starts with a choice to change. Making that choice. And yet, it's hard, isn't it? Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to say no? It's addictive. That's why. And that's why I believe in total abstinence. Because it's addictive. It just makes sense to stay away from it. Number six, last thing. I believe in total abstinence from alcohol because wisdom calls me to set it aside. Wisdom. The Bible does not require total abstinence. And that's sometimes where people jump off a message like this. If I were to sit up here and just, and, and just, just push something through because somebody else said it, I can't do that. I, I've, got to, I've got to preach the whole counsel of God. And so I know that, 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 that statement needs to be made. It does not require total abstinence. But I believe the Bible recommends it as the course that is highest and best filled with the greatest wisdom and the choice for which you can be the most proud of when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's try to make that choice three ways. Number one, it's a wise choice. It's a wise choice. Why is it a wise choice? According to Proverbs 20 and verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It's a wise choice to stay away. It's a wise choice to say no. It's a wise choice not to drink alcohol. It's a wise choice. Number two, it's a loving choice. It's a loving choice. Scripture says in Romans chapter 14, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Listen, sometimes we tend to be so selfish. Well, I just want to do this. I want to eat this. I want to drink this. I want to do this. Wait, what about others? Is it okay sometimes to make a decision not based on what you want, but what's best for your children? What's best for the next generation? What's best for other church members? It's, it's, a, it's a loving choice. Sometimes as a believer, I make choices not because it's best for me, but because it's best for you. It's best for my kids. It's best for Matthias and Josiah and Ezekiel and Chloe and Glorian. And I want to make decisions, not just, you know, well, I, I can do this. It's okay. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, forget about what's okay for me. Is it okay for my kids? Do I love them enough to make decisions? That will help them and guide them into the best choices. So therefore, I believe the choice for abstinence is a loving choice. Reading on. 
do not let your regard, do, do not let what you regard as good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. There it is. But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For some reason, I think we begin to live our lives selfishly and we forget that, that we're living for the kingdom. And there's coming a day very soon. And as I get older, I'm less and less concerned about myself. I'm less and less concerned about my wife and I having everything we need and having riches and having things. We're almost out of here. What I'm concerned about is that this church is a Bible church when I'm gone. Amen. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little red-faced over a good thing now. I'm concerned that this church has young people that are living for God and becoming missionaries and serving God. And I'm not all in this about my retirement, what you're going to do for me. I've been there 25 years. Take care of me. Forget me, man. Let's think about these young people. That's why we're here. I'm really less and less in this for me. And I'm more and more in this for them and for you and for others. It's a loving choice. And then I've seen this to be true. Kids embrace what parents tolerate. I've seen that. Oh, man. The primary place where kids begin to experiment with drinking is from their parents' closet. It's the primary place. It's been said that most kids drink their first drink of alcohol from their parents' supply. Something to think about. And that's not going to be a problem at the Capacy home, I can tell you that for sure. It's our loving choice. Number three, it's an edifying choice. It's an edifying choice to choose total abstinence. Look at this verse in Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. It's an edifying choice. In the same context, Romans 14, in that same context of eating and drinking, it says, hey, why don't we make decisions that make for peace and edify one and build each other up? I'll be honest, church, I don't know of one really good thing about alcohol. I don't. I, I can't name one good reason to drink. I just can't. And I have a I struggle with, in my mind, after this, this intense study and all these scriptures, how any uh, blood-bought believer of Jesus Christ could say, it's, it's okay, it's okay. Let everybody kind of figure it out for themselves. And, you know, kids have to learn the hard way. And wait a minute. Is that a wise choice? Is that a loving choice? Is that a identifying choice? You and I need to be examples to those that are watching us. So lovingly, lovingly, as your shepherd... Imperfect as I am, I commend to you this morning total abstinence as the wisest and best choice. Three types of people in this room. Those that are total abstainers. Those that drink for amusement. And by the way, those that do drink for amusement. I know that's in our church. I just have a recommendation to get 100% free for the highest and best choice. And those of you that are addicted, Friday nights, dinner starts at 6. It's a great program. We love you. I know it's tough. I know you're under the, the spell. I know, I know it's, 
You're under its control, but God says, my spirit is stronger than that. And you can overcome and get set free. Man, we had a guy come down at 9 o'clock this morning. It was awesome. Brother Ray, he came down weeping, shrugging, big old burly guy, got on his face before God. I wrapped my arms around him. I said, what can I pray with you about? He said, I'm addicted. I need to be set free. Preacher, pray for me. We had a time, man, revival. Awesome. Let's show some compassion. Let's show some love. Let's reach out to him and care for him. Every head bowed and every eye closed. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm all done. My voice is about done too. But you know, I feel better now because I just believe it's necessary that after 25 years that you heard what the Bible teaches about alcohol. Not just a personal opinion, not just a little pop shot. You know, by the way, sometimes we like to preach against sins we don't do, right? Truth of the matter is, there's other things we can be addicted to as well. Tonight, we just, this morning rather, we spent our time on, on this subject. So if God tonight or today has spoken to your heart and there is something that is, that is touching you this morning, touching your heart, you feel some, a need to come and pray, I want to invite you to the altar as we sing a song of invitation. I want to invite you to come and find a place at the altar. Maybe you need to pray for a loved one that's under the spell of alcohol. Maybe you need to come and, and just say, God, help me to be the kind of king and priest I need to be for my family. Maybe you need to come and, and just ask us to pray over you to overcome the addictive, sinful patterns that are in your life because of alcohol. Whatever it is, if you've never been saved, maybe you're in that group and you would say, Preacher, that's me. I've got this pattern. I've, I just, I've never been able to get rid of it. It's impossible to do without Jesus Christ. You may need to be saved this morning. You come. Father, I love you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the Bible. I thank you, Father, that we can preach it in spirit and truth. We can do it lovingly. God, I'm not here to judge anyone. And God, I, I, I commit to you, Lord, that I'm not here to, to say that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. I just want to make sure that what I say, I can defend with your word. And I pray that all of us can leave this place this morning with that as our testimony. I love you. We love you. Please bless our time of invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?